You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Sports Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Asher Price about his book, Earl Campbell, Yards After Contact. Asher covers energy and environmental issues for the Austin American Statesman. Earl Campbell is his third book. Asher Price, welcome to the show. I'm so pleased to be here, Paul. Asher, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. I, uh, I grew up in New York City, um, and I went to college up at Yale and um, moved down to Austin, Texas about 15 years ago uh, to take a job as a uh, staff reporter at the Austin American Statesman, the daily newspaper here, uh, which is where I'm still employed. And uh, I cover energy and environmental issues and state politics. And... Um, and uh, and I have a wife and a daughter and um, and a dog. All right. Um, what's your dog's name? The dog's name is Poppy. Poppy. Yeah, but she's small wow. and black, so she's like a poppy seed. <laughs> so moving on to your book, it, it's it's an excellent book. Again, it's called Earl Campbell Yards After Contact. Um, as you capture in the book, the, the story of Earl Campbell, the man and the athlete, is very much intertwined with the development of Texas, you know, racially, culturally. How did a native New Yorker like yourself come to write about this topic? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, um, in some ways, I feel like an imposter, um, partly because I'm not a Texan. Uh, I, I Earl Campbell, uh, his whole life and trajectory was in Texas. He grew up in East Texas. He plays uh, football for the University of Texas um, and, uh, and then plays professionally for Houston. Um, and, uh, and I also uh, was born in the late 70s, which was Campbell's heyday as, a, as an athlete. Um, and so I, uh, in, in many ways, I'm a foreigner. Um, uh, but I, 
I, it is, as I mentioned earlier, I had been here, uh, lived in, in Austin about 15 years and, and I wanted to write a Texas book. I wanted to write a book about, um, something about the history and politics of Texas. Um, and I've also long been interested in sports and, um, sort of the intersection of sports and race. And, um, and Earl Campbell had been a kind of Paul Bunyan figure of my, of my youth. I had his football card. I, I, uh, even though I, even though I was up in New York City, I, I had this, you know, image of him as, a, as this enormously, uh, this enormous, uh, enormous man who, you know, he had he had thighs the the waist of, of, of basically a man's waist, um, and uh, I had I had moved down to Texas and I had become a University of Texas football fan and I had seen Earl Campbell come out to give the coin flip at a uh, before a game, you know. Um, this, the, you know, heads or tails, which, you know, who's going to receive and who's going to kick off. And he was hobbled. He, um, he moved with great dignity, but he, he was diminished. And, uh, I had wondered what had happened to Earl Campbell. At that point, I wasn't thinking about writing a book, but the more I learned about his, his life story, the more I thought, oh, there's something to write here. So it, it seems to me like like the subject's birth is a very natural starting point for any biography. But um, I, I found that the story of Campbell's birth and that of his twin brothers, specifically their na the naming process for them, seemed to me to be the perfect way to set the scene in Tyler, Texas in the 1950s. Can you share how they received their names and, and why you decided to, decided to start the book at that point? Yeah, totally. I can. Um, and I, you know, I, I didn't know anything about Earl when I started looking into him. And this was one of the stories that kind of caught my attention. Um, you know, Earl Campbell grew up in Tyler, which is in East Texas, really the deep South. And the, the, the saying is, um, you know, Tyler's in a different time zone. You, you set your clock 50, uh, 50 years back. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, um, so the story of Earl's birth is this: um, he is delivered by a um, he's delivered by a white doctor in the the shack of a house that he and his family own in um, in East Texas. Um, this is in in rural Tyler, um, and the doctor's full name is Earl Christian Kinsey. And the the Campbell parents they they this is a, a poor rose farm. This is a they lived in a house so modest that you could, this family said you could see the, the Big Dipper through a, uh, through a hole in the roof. Um, uh, the Campbell parents were deliberating about what to name their newborn son. And Earl Christian Kinsey suggested that the Campbells name their son after himself. Um, you know, I have, an, I, as I mentioned, I have a daughter. And um, I can tell you that in the delivery room, the OBGYN didn't say, <laughs> um, have you thought about naming your kid after me? Um, okay. So that that was a weird story to me, and, and the it gets weirder. You know, his his the next two kids, um, Tim and Steve, um, were twins, and uh, the Ann Campbell actually wanted to name them something different, but the uh, the doctor um, the doctor scribbled these names into the into the. Uh, into the birth certificate, and when she, when, when Ann Campbell is well enough recovered, um, 
Uh, she went down to the county courthouse to get the names changed, and she was told it would cost $100, and she didn't have the money. And so they became, hence after, known as Tim and Steve. Um, so that, and actually, there's, the, the, the family has said to me that that was in lieu of payment. Uh, the, the, the doctor got these kinds of naming rights. Another Campbell kid was named after the doctor's wife. Um, but what was also strange to me uh, was that the Campbell family and the Kinsey family remained close until Dr. Kinsey's death. Dr. Kinsey was a guest of honor at Earl's Hall of Fame induction. He, uh, Earl was a, was a pallbearer at, uh, it, it, for Kinsey. Um, and so I think this story says something about, about race, but also about the closeness of African-Americans and whites in this part of Texas. Um, it says, you know, it has obviously these echoes of slavery and naming. Um, and so for me, it, yeah, it became a, a great way into this, into this book, which explores partly what it means for, you know, this particular athlete, this particular black athlete to be a black athlete in the 1970s, given his, his upbringing, given what was going on Tyler at the time at the University of Texas and so on. Um, th this book is obviously very well researched. Can you talk a little bit about the research process? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, um, the research was the most fun part, I'd say, of the of the whole project. I mean, partly it involved dozens and dozens of interviews, uh, you know, with with uh, with people who you know who came to know Earl one way or another, from Earl himself to the bus driver who drove Earl uh, and his team the the to the state high school championship in 1973. I mean, there's a whole runs a whole gamut of people, but. But there was also a lot of paper that I went through. Um, and by that, I, I mean, you know, combing through the archives, of both in Tyler and in Austin and in Houston, and especially in Austin, there was a lot of disturbing and illuminating documents that I came across. And Earl was born in, in 1955, a year after the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And, uh, and he, he starts playing at University of Texas in 1974. And the, the first black players didn't weren't allowed on the team until 1970. So I was sort of I was curious about what was going on at the University of Texas between 1954 and 1970. Um, what path segregation was taking? What path integration was taking? Why was it that the football team remained all white through 1970? Um, and that involved reading through confidential memos, letters. Uh, among members of the University of Texas Board of Regents, between regents and administrators and, and faculty members, basically about how to keep the university white for as long as possible. Um, and, um, you know, these are, these are well-written, bureaucratic uh, memos that quite um, clearly and chillingly um, lay out how the university is going to um, basically enact the logistics of apartheid. Um, you know, um, you know, from things as simple to we're not going to um, allow African-Americans on the football team until other 
schools in the Southwest Conference do to um, canceling certain kinds of square dances in the wake of the Brown decision uh, because uh, administrators were worried that um, uh, white students, especially white girls, would come into contact with African-Americans, especially African-American men. Um, uh, you know, some of the documents were about the internal deliberations about adopting the standardized testing in the wake of the Brown decision to suppress the number of African-Americans uh, who would be admitted onto campus and enrolled at University of Texas. Uh, you know, there's things is sort of every day as a as a uh, the chair of the English department in the early 1960s, sending a note to the uh, university president saying, can you remind me what our policy is about having African-American graduate students um, teaching white undergraduates? Um, African-American, of course, wasn't the term used at the time. Um, right. Uh, and the the uh, the note comes back from the university president saying they are allowed to be in research positions, but not in teaching positions. In other words, they can be behind the scenes, but not in positions of power over white students. Um, so there are you know 101 different ways that um, this is playing out on a on a bureaucratic level, and so there's also issues of the power of lawmakers who control the purse, who don't want to see the university integrating. You have the regents who are the governor appointed kind of overseers of the university who tend to be old white men and, and segregationist in their impulses. And then you have a more progressive um, student body and faculty. And so there's that, that tension as well. So the, the book in the, in the whole Austin section, as you know, takes a, a big detour into how the university, especially the football team, is is remaining as white as possible all these years before Campbell gets there. Yeah, I have to say, um, I I found that to be the most fascinating part of the book. Um, as someone who's interested in history myself and is also uh, uh, a former New Yorker, or I guess always New Yorker, who now lives in Austin. Um, and as you said, how... You know, of course, we know about these things in a general sense, the, the type of discrimination that went on certainly after Brown v. Board of Ed. But um, to read the kind of official uh, documents and, and the language of a high institution like that is is quite is quite jarring. Yeah, I think you um, put your finger on it. I mean, I think that in a way, conceptually, or it's not shocking, but I think the... I think it is jarring the, to see you're, you're basically getting a glimpse into how power operates behind closed doors. Um, you know, the regents might say one thing publicly about how they were, you know, with all deliberate speed, you know, trying to please be patient. We're trying to move through these, these complicated issues, but privately they were actively trying to um, stymie uh, integration. Um, and, you know, you go to the University of Texas archive, you order these documents from the, from the um, you know, University of Texas president's file or the dean of admissions files. And these librarians um, come out with these heavy boxes. Uh, they, they're shipped in from offsite from a warehouse and, and uh, they put them on your desk in the archive and you 
start kind of poking your way through these different folders that, you know, the, the folder has a title that just says, um, you know, Negroes or something like that. So right. it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's very, it's very bald, I'd say. Right. Um, an important figure in the book and kind of certainly a giant in, in University of Texas football history is Daryl Royal. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Coach Royal's role uh, or involvement in, in keeping black players off of the team. Yeah, Daryl Royal is a really complicated figure. I mean, he <clears throat> hired by uh, the University of Texas in the late 1950s. Um, uh, the, the team is terrible, and he, um, and he manages to, to turn it around quite quickly, and he becomes... Um, maybe the most famous coach in the 1960s in the United States. Um, by by the time 1970 rolls around, I think he's won three national championships. These have been with all white teams, and um, even as he personally may be sympathetic to, um, in a kind of uh, mild way, let's say, to the civil rights movement, he's he doesn't use his position as um, head coach of the University of Texas football team, um, which is an extra, incredibly powerful position to uh, promote black athletes. Um, partly he's coming under pressure from the regents, as I mentioned earlier, the overseers of the university. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the open questions is, is Royals, you know, complicity. Uh, you know, look, just like many other major universities of South Alabama, uh, for example, remain all white during this period. And, uh, and even as other Southwest Conference teams had, had, had integrated as early as 1966, um, the UT team remains all white through, through the 1970 season. Um, so, so what do we make of Royal now? You know, his name is on the, is on the football stadium. And I think um, a lot of the reason he's palatable at all to certain Longhorns fans today is because of the way he started bringing on black athletes in the 1970s. Partly this is just because he wanted to win and he wanted to remain competitive. But I also tell the story that he became friends with uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson after Johnson um, decided not to run for re-election. They, the two of them become quite close. And Johnson pushes Royal to use his position to promote um, to promote black athletes. Um, so there, you know, as I said, there are other athletes who come, who are, who, um, or become members of the football team before Earl Campbell. Um, but, uh, um, Royals, Royal through the early seventies, even, even as he's bringing on black athletes onto the team, um, remains bad among black households in Texas. The, the, the school has a racist reputation, a, a, a well-deserved racist reputation. And, um, and this figures into the story of the recruitment of Earl Campbell, which I'll tell just briefly here, which is that um, uh, I think Royal in many ways saw the recruitment of Earl Campbell as one last way to redeem his legacy. Um, one of the stories I tell in the, in the book is that in 1966, okay, while the team remains all white, there was a 
assistant coach of a small school in Texas called Sweeney, which had just won the state championship um, and had a star wide receiver named Elmo Wright, who would later go on to play professionally. Um, and the, the, this assistant coach, Ken Dabbs, asked Elmo Wright, where does he want to go to, to school to play football? And Elmo Wright says he wants to go to the University of Texas. He wants to be the first African-American player. Dabbs gets up the nerve to call Royal, this really famous coach, and says, we have this player here you ought to take a look at. And basically, Royal says, we're not ready to take that step right now. It sounds like Elmo Wright would be a, you know, a great player here, but we at the University of Texas aren't ready to take that step. So flash forward to 1973, that summer, Ken Dabbs is now the head coach at, um, at a new high school football program at a place called Westlake. Now, Westlake High School today is famous for being one of the top football programs in the country. Drew Brees went to Westlake. Nick Foles went to Westlake. Right. Many other great players went to Westlake. And Dabbs is just getting this program off the ground. And, and he gets a call from Daryl Royal. And Royal says, I'd like to hire you to be my recruiter in East Texas. And Dabbs says, well, I'm honored, but you, know, you, could, you could hire anybody in the country for that job. Why do you want to hire me? And Royal says, because if I had listened to you in 1966, I wouldn't be in the mess I'm in today by which he meant this problem of this, of this stigma, as he called it, of uh, this, this racist reputation. And um, so Dabbs decides to take the job. He, he, he told me that he was the only person on, uh, on Royal staff who had coached African-Americans at all in high school. And uh, anyway, Campbell give, uh, uh, Royal gives him his marching orders in, in 1973, and, and it's this. There's a kid out at John Tyler High School in Tyler, Texas, who I want you to get for us, and his name is Earl Campbell. So that's a story, you know, about how how Royal Royal wanted Campbell that badly, and and he was he was right, and it was tied into into what his reputation was. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Right. Um... So as you referred to before, Earl Campbell is kind of a, a Paul Bunyan-like figure. Um, of course, he had he had this incredible, incredibly rare mix of speed and and power, and he was known, of course, to run players over rather than run out of bounds. Can you tell listeners a little bit about Earl Campbell, the man, the person? Yeah, I, it's a it's a kind of funny contrast. I mean, he was ruthless on the field. He um, he never wanted to go out of bounds. He uh, you know he would treat a third and two like it was a third and eight. I mean, he would run with this kind of desperation. And, um, and I think part of that actually has to do with um, uh, the fact that his father died when he was 11 years old. Um, and I think he had a desperation to please his coaches. He had Daryl Royal. M m many of Daryl Royal's players actually did not develop a particularly close relationship with, with, with him, but, 
but Earl Campbell did. He also develops a close relationship with his Houston coach, Bum Phillips. Um, and he wants to please, he wants to please these men. Um, uh, he's also just a competitive guy, but then the, the kind of contrast part is that off the field, he's extremely easygoing. He's, he's very relaxed. He, he likes nothing more than listening to country music. Um, uh, even when I interviewed him, even as he was quite shrewd and, uh, about, um, you know, about being a black kid from Tyler. I mean, he said to me that 90% of black men would never leave the Tyler city limits. And in other words, they didn't have that kind of economic opportunity that he did because of his ability running a football. Um, uh, he, he was all, he's also just relaxed. I mean, he, he was both chewing tobacco and sucking a lollipop um, <laughs> while I talked to him. Um, he was known in in news conferences to, you know, express himself in terms of Merle Haggard or Willie Nelson lyrics. Um, he in in Houston he liked, you know, to frequent the uh, this the very same bar in which uh, the the story and movie Urban Cowboy were set. The, you know, the one with the mechanical bull. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's licensed his name to a very popular sausage brand, Earl Campbell sausages, which is in keeping with his kind of, um, I think his reputation is as a kind of beloved Texan through and through. He's a, he's a very, he's a very, very much a Texas figure, which is what helped me write to write this book. I mean, it's why I was drawn to, to writing about Texas through Earl was, because of this, as I said, this trajectory he has, but um, all through Texas, but he remains through it all a country kid. Um, he's a country kid in terms of, you know, <laughs> the sausages. He's a country kid in terms of his drawl. Um, he's a country kid, I think, in many ways, in terms of his approach to uh, issues about race. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so I, 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 uh, I, I found him, um, to be, to be kind of very relaxed, easygoing guy. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, how did he view his role as an African-American superstar in Texas in the, in the 1970s and 1980s as, as Texas is changing so much around him and in some ways, to some extent because of him or through him as this, you know, great football star. Yeah. It's a fun, I, I, well, basically the short answer is that he saw himself as a uniter. Uh, you know, he said to me that he'd look up into the stands, whether he was playing high school football and leading the team to a state championship in Tyler or playing professionally in Houston and looking up in the stands of the Astrodome, uh, that there would be white and black fans cheering for the teams that he was playing on. And so he sees football as a way to, you know, reconcile people, um, you know, whether that's how deep that is or how real that reconciliation is, I think, a debatable question. Um, but, you know, I think that's right also that he was, a, he was an athlete of the 1970s. He wasn't an athlete of 1968. He was an athlete of, of the 2000 teens, that is to say, he didn't have like an upraised fist or he wasn't on bended knee. 
Um, and the very night that he wins the Heisman Award in December of 1977, he's asked about being a black athlete winning the Heisman. If I remember correctly, he was the first black athlete from a big school in the South to win the Heisman. Up until that point, if you had been a great black football player, you had either gone to a historically black college or you went out of state. You went to Michigan or Michigan State or UCLA. Um, it's only in the 1970s that these schools start to allow African-American players on their teams. So he's asked this question, and his answer is, I don't think of myself as a black athlete. I think of myself as an athlete, which is a, obviously a perfectly reasonable way to respond to that question. But seeing through, our, through the lens of 2019, that in itself, even as that is meant to be a kind of conciliatory thing, um, to say it, it, it comes off as a... As a it, is a, almost as a political statement. He didn't mean it that way. He was just saying, look, I'm just a guy playing football, okay? You know, I don't, I don't think of things that way. But um, um, so that, that, too, was fascinating to me. Right. I'd like to move on to the, to the third part of the book. I guess I should mention for our listeners, Earl Campbell Yards After Contact is divided into three sections, uh, the first one being uh, Earl's life in Tyler, um, the second one being Austin, his collegiate years in Austin, and lastly, um, his his time as a professional in Houston with the Oilers. Um, can you talk a little bit about what was going on in Houston from a cultural standpoint when Earl was with the Oilers? Oh, yeah. That, it's a totally bizarre moment, um, this urban cowboy moment. I mean, there's this rush of, of you know, basically Marlboro men from rural Texas into the big city of Houston, uh, and in a way, Earl's one of those guys coming from rural Texas to Houston. It happens that his skill is running with a football instead of, you know, fitting pipe. Um, but um, in, in, I, in my feeling is that never has, has a team and an athlete been so well suited to a time and a, and a place. You have this kind of lunch pail, mediocre uh, crew, the Houston Oilers. Um, who are suddenly a contender with Earl Campbell as a running back. They twice go to the AFC Championship game his, his first two seasons and where they lose to the, you know, the great Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, so they were on the brink of a Super Bowl. But um, uh, this was a, a time when uh, you, know, you, you have kind of high and low Houston. You have, as I said, people riding the mechanical bull at Gillies, this bar, you know, the John Travolta's in town filming Urban Cowboy, I think during Earl's second or third season. Uh, but you also have this kind of gaudy Houston, you know, um, uh, oil boom uh, lifestyle going on, big houses, big cars, big hair. Um, people had oil, oil Derek, you know, um, um, necklaces, uh, rings, of course, the decals on the Oilers, too. Um, so this is sort of go-go years that, that Earl's in Houston. And uh, that was a lot of fun to write about. Yeah, it's, uh, it, that was interesting for me. I didn't know a great deal about some of the some of the changes that were going on in Houston at that time. Um, another thing that was interesting to me about that section of the book was there's kind of a theme through the book about the, that or that in that section about the relationship between the Oilers and Houston. And I assume that you, 
as I did growing up in, in New York, heard stories about the devastation over the, the Brooklyn Dodgers leaving town. Um, I was not aware of how closely tied the Oilers were with the city of Houston. Was uh, What kind of effect did the Oilers leaving have on that city? Well, I think it, it set football back in that city for years. I mean, I don't think people feel about the Texans the way they, feel, they felt about the Oilers. Um, partly, I think a lot of the, the affection for the Oilers had to, had to do with affection for the head coach during that heyday, Bum Phillips, who was this like total quipster cowboy. I mean, a really authentic cowboy Texan guy, you know, who'd wear boots of various skins on the sidelines, um, you know, who had, uh, who wore cowboy hats to games. Um, and, you know, he was asked during Earl's training camp, Earl was having trouble running the mile. And um, reporters noticed this and asked Bum Phillips about, you know, whether this would be a problem. And Bum said, well, we just won't give the ball to Earl when it's third and a mile to go. Um, but he was really easy with jokes like that, which endeared him both to journalists and also um, fans. Meanwhile, they had this terrible owner, Bud Adams, who everyone seems to agree was a jerk. Uh, you know, he shorted his players' money. He, con- you know, he, he, uh, he, there was a woman who was the mayor of Houston who was harassed by him. Um, uh, he, um, uh, he was just a kind of oily character and, um, he was the one who took the team out of Houston. Um, he also fired Bum Phillips, uh, um, even though Bum, you know, had led the team to greatness. So, um, I think a lot of the anger, uh, that Houstonians felt about, about the departure of the team was directed to Bud Adams when that happened, um. Of course, he took the team to Tennessee, and he had his own he had his own reasons for doing that. Right? Yeah, I, I certainly encourage our listeners. I think all football player, all football fans of a certain age know about Bum Phillips. Um, I'm glad you brought him up, um, and I encourage our listeners if you don't to to read certainly you know read about him in your book and and to check out some of his quotes. I one one of them jumps to mind for me. Um, he was once asked. Why he took his t- took his wife on all, the, all excuse me? Why he took his wife on all the Oilers road trips? And he said because she's too ugly to kiss goodbye. Uh, <laughs> I never that heard part. that. That's so. That's yeah. funny. Yeah, he has said they had this. Uh, they had this um, Austrian field goal kicker Tony Fritsch, who was a pretty good kicker. And uh, Bum said um, every time I send Fritsch out to kick a field goal, I thank God for a country's immigration laws. Um, so he was, he was, he was very, he was very funny that way and, 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 and beloved. I mean, he would, he would bring kegs out to practices. He invited players to bring their wives and kids out to, I think it was a Saturday practice. He, he, he'd bring, um, Willie Nelson to practice. Um, and you know, there's also a funny period where there's a lot of, I mean, you can go to YouTube or Google, you know, Oilers music. There was this whole, I mean, we think of the Chicago Bears in 1985 and the, the Super Bowl shuffle, right? Um, right. But the, there, was, there was like a dozen songs around those Oilers teams that were these, these pretty terrible, 
but <laughs> charming, totally charming songs. Um, you know, Houston Oilers number one, and 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 um, this was the Love You Blue period where uh, even when the Oilers would lose to the Steelers and they'd come back um, beaten down team, fifty thousand people would come to the Houston Houston Astrodome to welcome them back. Um, I mean, that doesn't happen with other teams. Um, no. Yeah. There's there's something um, really touching, I think, about about that. Um, and uh, and Earl was Earl was at the center of all that. They had this they had this quarterback Dan Pastorini, who was a decent quarterback. I call him a, a poor man's Joe Namath. I mean, he was kind of a playboy type um, um, who would get who got totally beaten up the years before Earl got there, and then he finally has Earl and behind him in the backfield and it opens up the passing game, you know, for the, for the Oilers. So, um, Earl, Earl really transforms that squad and he's very modest about it the whole time too. I mean, he's very modest in interviews about his, about his ability on, on the field and how that changes things. But, but, uh, I think Earl's style appealed to Oilers fans. I mean, um, I think this partly goes back to how he wasn't a, um, is, is, let me put it this way. One, one kind of football historian of that period described him to me as unthreatening to white fans. Um, he, he, he fit the ethos of Houston uh, as being a kind of, in a sense, in quotes, hardworking you know, type of football player. He, he, he wasn't, in quotes again, you know, showy or flashy, all these loaded terms. Um, right. And, uh, and uh, I think... That also, um, apart from leading the team to wins, I think that also made him an appealing, um, an appealing player for, for not just black but also white Houston fans. Right. You you mentioned early in the interview, of course, some of the uh, physical ailments that Earl deals with now, and and um, of course we've learned so much more about the toll that football takes on on players' bodies in recent years. Um, it's interesting with him because um, even more so than many, he was, uh, he did not run out of bounds, right? He, he always looked, he always um, initiated, frankly, that, that next hit. Um, and I wonder how he looks back on his career now, um, given, you know, some of the, the, the price that he's had to pay. That's a terrific question. I think that in some ways gets at the heart of the book. I mean, you're right. There's a lot of nostalgia around Earl Campbell about his um, ability to kind of splatter defenders. You know, there was one linebacker who said every time you try to tackle Earl Campbell, Campbell, you know, you lose a few IQ points. Um, but all that, all that violence goes both ways. And uh, he's had, you know, half dozen knee surgeries and, back surgeries he's had back surgeries to correct back surgeries and and he said that he has some short-term memory problems um how much of that has to technically do with football and how much has to do with other things i guess remains a medically speaking an open question although it seems intuitive that that football is to blame for for a lot of that he's he's ambivalent even cagey i think about blaming football for his medical problems. And um, I think that ambivalence uh, 
has to do a lot with his roots. I mean, I think a lot of us, if you, if you said, uh, you know, would you trade a long-term health um, for fame and fortune? I think a lot of us would actually turn that down. You know, you call that a, a deal with the devil, right? And the reason it's a deal with the devil is it's not a bargain worth striking, really. But I think Earl would strike that bargain again. Um, and uh, I think his ambivalence about blaming football um, speaks to that. And I think the reason for that goes back to what you know I mentioned he had said to me, which is that 90% of, of black men don't get to leave Tyler. I think because of his, his peculiar abilities running a football, because of the hard work he put into it, because of his talent, it allowed him to do something that, that many of his peers wouldn't be able to do. And it, it lifted not just him out of poverty, but his, his whole family. Um, he, you know, with his first professional contract, he builds a new house for his mother. He buys the, he buys the nearby property that, you know, his family was dispossessed from decades earlier. Uh, and, and, um, and that's now his, his ranch, um, out in Tyler, you know, he moves to a, well-to-do uh, suburban um, neighborhood outside of Austin. Um, and so this, it's these kinds of things that football allowed him to do. Um, and so I think, he, I think he would strike that deal again. Well, Asher, I've taken up enough of your time. I, I, have, I have one final question for you that I'd like to ask guests, and that is, what is the best sports book you have ever read? Oh, that's a really great question. You know, I I really love Paper Lion, uh, the George Plimpton book. That's the book in which uh, Plimpton, um, uh, you know, was allowed to be at Lions training camp in the early 1960s. And he sticks out like a sore thumb. But he writes about it so beautifully, about the locker room, about his relationship with the other players. He writes about race in football, uh, um, and, uh, and I just, um, you know, for, for, for any fan of good writing, uh, let alone good sports writing, I, I recommend Paper, Paper Lion. Well, thank you, Asher Price. Once again, uh, Asher's book is named Earl Campbell, Yards After Contact. Um, it's an excellent uh, retelling of the the life and career of Earl Campbell, but it's much more than that. This isn't just a sports book. This is this is a history book. This is a book about about Texas. This is a book about race, and um, I found it fascinating. I highly recommend it. And Asher, thank you again for being on the podcast. I'm I'm so glad to have been a guest. Thanks a lot, Paul. Those are great questions. I appreciate it. <laughs>